Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. The New Statesman. I'm Megan Gibson, Executive Editor of Foreign in London. I'm Katie Stallard, Senior Editor, China and Global Affairs in Washington, D.C. I'm Ida Vok, Europe Correspondent in Berlin. It's Thursday, the 5th of January. You're listening to World Review from The New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. After China's government reversed course on its COVID-0 policy last month, case numbers are already surging and hospitals are expected to be inundated with newly infected patients. We have now entered a new phase of COVID response, where tough challenges remain. Everyone is holding on with great fortitude, and the light of hope is right in front of us. We discuss how opening up the country so suddenly will affect China and the world. Then we discuss Ukraine's missile attack on the city of Makivka on New Year's Day, which killed dozens of Russian troops. Thank you everyone who helps our country, and please don't forget to be prepared for Russian missile attacks or provocations. Air defense is preparing, the state is preparing, and everyone must prepare. We also take a listener question on what to read to better understand Ukrainian culture. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. So for almost three years now, China has relied on a restrictive zero COVID policy to control the pandemic using mass testing, contact tracing, and rigid lockdowns. And after a wave of extraordinary protests late last year, the government reversed course on the policy in December. But as most controls have been abandoned, case numbers have predictably started to rise. There's a lot of fears now over rampant spreading, hospitals being inundated, new variants that could emerge. And we're seeing it's almost a sense of deja vu from what we saw three years ago with European countries and North America grappling with whether to test new arrivals from China and how they should prepare themselves. So Katie, as our China expert, and who's also written quite a lot on this policy, why don't you start out by saying what we need to be worried about at this moment? Yes, I think it's right to draw the comparison with 
three years ago. And China is now entering into the period that a lot of countries were experiencing in early 2020 with really astonishing spread, widespread community transmission levels, and anecdotally, huge pressure on hospital services. So the the pictures that we're seeing coming out of social media show patients being treated in hospital corridors because they're so short of, of beds, long queues outside what have been designated as fever clinics. It's very difficult to get a, an accurate handle on the actual statistics, partly because the government has mostly dismantled the testing infrastructure that had previously been in place and which had been such a feature of everyday life for most of the last three years in China was these PCR testing booths that you would have to go to every two or three days to to get tested overnight when the policy was changed in early December. Those booths were put onto the back of trucks and driven away. So there's much less testing. It's harder to get tested. And there's reason to be very skeptical about the figures that that the government is releasing. It, it has, for instance, reclassified the conditions for a death to be attributed to, to COVID. It would have to be direct respiratory failure. And there are reports that doctors are being told not to, quote, carelessly write COVID on death certificates. So it's difficult to get an accurate fix on the figures, but certainly what we're seeing in terms of reporting on social media is that the situation is pretty dire, that infections are really surging. I think the issue here is not that China decided to move away from the zero COVID policy, which we've discussed a lot on this podcast, and we've had experts such as Yang Pang on to talk about why China should do that. The issue is the way in which it's happened. It's been so abrupt, and it seems to really not have made good use of, like lockdowns elsewhere, if the period of the zero COVID policy, which is almost three years, had been used to get as much of the population as possible vaccinated, specifically including vulnerable sectors of the population, like the older population. And they could have approved, for instance, foreign mRNA vaccines, which they have not done. They would be in a much better position to open up. Instead, it seems more like the past three years really saw a lot of efforts put into the zero COVID policy. So as I said, the widespread testing infrastructure huge efforts to build these what were known as fangzang, the temporary massive quarantine centers that people were required to isolate in. A lot of effort was put into the zero COVID policy itself, less so on preparing to come out the other side. And particularly with the older population, I think that's where the concern is now, because the numbers, there has been a, a, a widespread issues with vaccine hesitancy, particularly among the older population. And the picture right now is around a third of people over 80 who are most vulnerable have not been fully vaccinated. And only 40% of that group have received a third booster dose, which they need, according to the World Health Organization, to be protected against serious illness using the Chinese vaccines. Long story short is that it, it seems that time has been somewhat squandered. It's probably important to say, if you look at vaccination levels overall, 90% of the population has been fully vaccinated, which is two doses, but that number doesn't obviously reflect the number that that actually have the three doses that they would need. And instead of what we saw here in the United States and in Europe, where you are three years ago, with all of these efforts to flatten the curve, to make sure that everyone wasn't getting infected at the same time, and therefore turning up at hospitals at the same time, that's not happening. So the policy has been scrapped, the travel restrictions and testing requirements have been lifted, 
And now, obviously, people are getting infected in massive numbers. So that's leading to huge pressure on the healthcare system. So it's been explicable that better preparations were not made. And I think one point to draw from this is there's sometimes a desire in the West to sort of romanticize China's political system and to look at it as, well, you know, there isn't the turnover of government every four years. There is the ability to have these long-term strategic planning. I think the handling of this policy really shows the, the light of that, which is that a decision was clearly made the restrictions were lifted. And now, you know, it's real people who are suffering the consequences. And is there anyone who, A, who bears the responsibility for that squandered period? And are there any theories of why so much time or potential was wasted? I think it's important to understand the incentives for local officials in China. And in the Chinese political system, the targets and the policies are set from the top. So that comes, Xi Jinping, for instance, will give a speech and that speech will be disseminated to all of the local levels of the party, to regional officials, to local officials. There will be study sessions to to look at his speech and understand what the policy is and how to implement it. The system is very set up for the implementation of those policy directives that come down. And then the criteria for the local level officials is, are you under the zero COVID policy, are you keeping infection levels low? Are you imposing strict lockdowns? Or even if there is economic and there's social cost, are you meeting that target? The system doesn't incentivize then parallel efforts alongside that. So, you know, if you've been told your main priority this month is infection levels, that's where you're putting your resources. That's where you're putting your enforcement. There There isn't the same incentive to also be trying to push a vaccination campaign. A lot of the responsibility for this does go to the very top levels. It goes to Xi Jinping. Decisions about whether to approve the foreign mRNA vaccines, for instance, are his to make. He'll be getting advice on them. But he could today, if he wanted to, say, yes, let's import every available effective vaccine that's been approved by the World Health Organization. Let's give our citizens the best possible protection. He isn't doing that. He also could be leading efforts to push back on this. Vaccine hesitancy is a real issue. There was a lot of disinformation and misinformation in the when the first vaccines were introduced about the possibility of, of serious side effects, particularly for older people. Xi Jinping could give a speech. He could get vaccinated on camera. He could really be leading a push to dispel that misinformation and to do some of the things that that have been happening in other countries of really prioritizing getting particularly older people vaccinated. And he isn't doing that. A lot of the responsibility for this does go to the highest levels, but it will be the most vulnerable people and the people who are least able to access effective healthcare, which really can be quite rudimentary and quite stretched in a lot of parts of China, it is those more vulnerable parts of the population that are going to really feel the effects of this very sudden policy shift. Obviously, this reverse of the policy has followed the protests that we spoke about, but also a real slowdown of the economy, which, as we're seeing anecdotal reports now, a lot of warehouses and industries are now struggling with people being off sick with COVID. And there's also a economic ramifications of that, which, since China is such a global driver of the world's economy, will surely have a domino effect on global supply chains, etc. How bad is this going to get? In the short term, I think the picture is going to be 
quite bleak. We're already seeing reports of factories having to suspend production. Tesla, for instance, has had a temporary halt because workers are getting sick and they're not able to come to work. There are problems with logistics and getting the raw materials where they need to be, again, because of these very high levels of infection. I think if and once we're beyond this initial stage of the virus and assuming that the picture is better for instance, by the spring and the summer months, it, it is reasonable to expect that there will be somewhat of a rebound of the Chinese economy. But And I, I think it's important to understand the economic factors as the basis for this decision. Yes, we saw the frankly unprecedented in, in recent years, street protests calling for an, an end to these measures. So the social cost of the policy was clearly very high. But I think a key factor in the decision to reverse course was the economic toll. I think senior officials were watching Chinese economic figures get worse and worse and seeing that with how transmissible the Omicron variant is, maintaining the zero COVID policy in that environment was leading to these very long very strict and very damaging lockdowns. So I think that the imperative to kickstart the economy was a major factor in the decision to, to shift away from zero COVID. But it, had it been done in a more thoughtful, more gradual, better prepared manner, I think we'd be seeing less of the short-term impact that we're going to see. It's also worth just noting the decision to do this in in the depths of winter when people are already socializing inside more and right ahead of the Lunar New Year holiday, which is China's busiest travel period. It's going to happen at the end of January. And that's when you see these millions of workers who are working for the rest of the year in the major cities returning to their hometowns, to rural areas where the healthcare system is less well-equipped. So the decision to make this shift now in the winter months and right ahead of the Lunar New Year holiday, we, we can expect the short-term spike to be worse and to be higher and therefore the economic impact to be greater. Beyond that, it's less clear, but it's important to say that the International Monetary Fund has already warned that they are they are watching the situation in China and there, there is a reason to, ex, to expect that China's growth levels this year will be lower than the global average for the first time in, in the last four decades. And that, as you say, because China has been such a critical engine of global growth, there will be ramifications felt from that far beyond China. So this is a story and an issue that is going to reverberate far beyond China's borders. Indeed. And it'll be one I'm sure we'll be covering on the podcast for weeks and months to come. Which leads us into our second subject of the day, Ukraine. In a rare admission on Monday, Russia's defense ministry said that 89 Russian soldiers were killed on New Year's Day after Ukraine hit a temporary deployment facility with their US-supplied HIMAR missiles. Ukraine and a number of pro-war Russian bloggers have said that the number of casualties was actually far greater. And this has all taken place against the backdrop of Russia's continued assault on Ukraine as drone attacks have bombarded Kiev and other areas of critical infrastructure over the holiday. I guess just as maybe a little catch up of where we are, Ido, did you want to talk about the pretty grim few weeks that Ukraine has had as these Iranian supplied drones have been used to target critical infrastructure? Fighting has really settled down into, into a sort of a stalemate for the time being over the past few weeks and months. This is kind of expected, like usually 
there are not advances as significant during the winter months as when the weather is warmer. Since taking us on, Ukraine has not really made very much more progress. And Russia has continued its strategy of hitting essential civilian infrastructure with cruise missiles and with these, as you said, Iranian drones. The Ukrainians seem to be doing a pretty good job at mitigating the effects of these strikes, but they're, they're still having a devastating impact on the country. Millions of people have been without power at times, although Ukraine has, has very quickly repaired some of the damage. And it's in that context that we had this, this attack by Ukrainian forces using, as you said, HIMARS. It was on what appears to be a school, or to have been a school, in the town of and it was apparently holding mobilized Russian troops from the Russian city of Samara, and also apparently seems to have been on or very close to an ammo dump. And so when the Ukrainians hit the school with their high miles rockets, which are these kind of very accurate guided missiles, which can be fired from from a from a great distance very accurately. The ammo dump exploded and probably hundreds of soldiers were killed. We don't have a lot of direct evidence from the scene, but the people who've been quoted in Russian media seem to have had some really pretty grim stories about people being turned into to mincemeat, in their words. So yeah, it seems like there was a very, very high death toll, probably the highest in a single attack since the beginning of the war. There's this kind of pretty brutal blame game on both sides. Blame game on the Russian side for who is responsible. The kind of pro-war hawkish military commentators are absolutely fuming at this. They're livid. They're saying quite rightly why were soldiers sleeping on top of a nano dump. And yeah, this kind of really exemplifies the incompetence, frankly, of the Russian army. And perhaps how even though the, the mobilization nominally increases the manpower available to the Russian army, it's it's often not really being used in a in a sort of smart way, and that's leading to very serious consequences. I guess I have a kind of an echo of a question I had for Katie earlier, is that is the anger and the blame kind of being directed at one figure for these failures? I don't know if it's one figure, but I think the military bloggers are using this as a particularly egregious example of the obviously... Um, terrible mismanagement and prosecution of the war by the army. The target through most of this has been Shoigu, the defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, because Putin obviously cannot be directly criticized. They criticized the defense minister and through that, the kind of army bureaucracy. I don't know if there's been one particular figure who is blamed for this, but I do think it exemplifies how angry these figures are, how angry the people who kind of support the war are about the way the army and the bureaucracy is managing or mismanaging its prosecution of the war. I just want to jump in to say, I think one significant thing to watch is, as Ida was rightly pointing out, where the blame redounds here. Because so many families across Russia are now grappling with the possibility that their relatives will be mobilized. One option is that this does focus dissent and complaints against the military high command. The other way this could go, though, and it's interesting that Russia is is admitting to that the attack has happened and admitting to a relatively high death toll, is that this could also play into Russian propaganda in terms of the type of war that they're fighting, the loss of so many 
lightly young mobilized men could become part of the propaganda campaign to to explain you know Russia has consistently falsely claimed that it is under attack and that it's fighting to to defend itself it's fighting to defend Russian lives obviously this would be another lie but this could be pulled into to that narrative about the kind of losses that Russia's suffering the barbarity from their perspective of this attack so we, I think it will be important to see how this plays out in the days and weeks ahead and if this does become a feature of Russian propaganda narratives but you know it's too early to say right now which way that's going to go and speaking of framing narratives from both russia and from ukraine i know you know vladimir putin cancelled his annual year-end conference but what kind of messages have they have zelensky or putin offered as the new year started yeah i think it's interesting to see so putin's new year's eve message is a sort of annual tradition. And he is really doubling down on this idea that Russia is fighting essentially the West in Ukraine, that this is a conflict that has been forced on Russia, that Russia has reluctantly been forced to defend itself and to stand up to this Western hegemonic tendencies, which is obviously, again, not true. I feel like I need to keep emphasizing, just explaining this is how he is explaining it, and it, but I, so I think the message from the takeaway from Putin's New Year's Eve speech was re, he is really framing this as an existential conflict that Russia will stay in for the long term. I, I, partly that's to intimidate or to attempt to in, intimidate Ukraine and Ukraine's supporters, but I think it is important to pay attention to the language he's using and the way that he's trying to frame this conflict at home, particularly as the costs both economic and in terms of real lives, mount. I think what was interesting about Zelensky's New Year's Eve speech, and which is something we hadn't seen for a number of months now, was returning a little bit to the theme right on the eve of the invasion. He gave this very powerful speech in Russian, appealing to Russian people and basically differentiating between them and the regime. I think we saw a little bit of a return to that and the idea that this is a war that you don't want and that's being forced on you from this kleptocratic regime at the top. So again, it will be interesting to see if that is a tactic that he will pursue from here and will try to appeal again directly to Russian citizens that this is not their war, this is not a conflict they want, and that this is that they should turn against the regime. So that I think that will certainly be something to watch closely. We saw a lot of that at the beginning of the war and like yeah. it really worked. You saw Zelensky speaking in Russian to Russians and telling them this is a criminal war, go out on the streets and protest. And there weren't that many protests. And essentially all of the opposition to the war on a domestic level has been quashed. People have been driven into exile and in the very few cases where they've remained in the country have been jailed. It's interesting as to whether they'll keep sticking to it, but more of the content in Russian from Ukrainians that I've seen has been kind of appealing to Russian soldiers to save themselves and to not on a kind of moral level about this being a criminal war or something. For example, I saw an appeal from Army saying that if they, if Russian soldiers send Ukraine the coordinates of their equipment, then the high miles will strike the equipment and not the soldiers. So it's this real kind of appeal to the self-preservation of the Russian soldiers and not any sense of kind of morality or decency, which has utterly failed, sadly. Yeah, indeed. It'll be really interesting to watch whether that is a strategy or a message that Zelensky continues to pursue. Because as you've said, we haven't seen it for a while now. And sadly, it hadn't really worked 
all that well in the beginning. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week. That's 12 weeks for just 12 pounds. That's one euro a week in Europe and just two dollars a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. Hi, I'm Anoush and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive & June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive & June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So now it's time to hear from you with a section we like to call You Ask, you ask Us. New Year, same old timing. <laughs> One listener, Andrew Bevan, uh, responded to our last interview episode with Alessia Kromechuk on Twitter asking her for reading recommendations to better understand Ukrainian culture. So on Twitter, Alessia recommended The Orphanage by Serhiy Zaydan and In Isolation by Stanislav Azeev, as well as the poetry by Irina Shuvalova. So we're just sharing that with our listeners here, as that was just on Twitter. But I'd also like to add that list, friend of the pod, uh, the novelist Andre Kirchhoff, whose novel Death and the Penguin is wonderful, and his recent memoir, Diary of Invasion, is 
particularly moving. Katie, Ito. You already stole my suggestion, which is Andre Kurgov. I wanted to second that suggestion. And I think an important point is to read Ukrainian writing, read Ukrainian perspectives on the war. I think one of the major failings, um, particularly at the outset of the war, was the failure to give Ukrainians agency. There's sort of the tendency to set this up as a battle between Russia and the West, I think we all needed to do a better job of, of centering Ukrainian perspectives. So I would also add to Kirkov Serhi Ploki, whose book, The Gates of Europe, A History of Ukraine, is an excellent backgrounder. Not culture, but history, which is more of my focus and passion. Another couple of suggestions would be Anne Applebaum's Red Famine, Stalin's War on Ukraine, which looks at the history of the famine from 1932 to 1933, known as the Holodomor. And also, I know it's been recommended a lot elsewhere, but Timothy Snyder, Bloodlands, Europe between Hitler and Stalin, again, for a sort of longer historical perspective on the current conflict. I don't know if there's anything left. In the- <laughs> I read seconds. Chernobyl, which is really excellent and does a really good job, I think, of showing just what a utter catastrophe um, Chernobyl was for for the Soviet leadership. And it was really one of the key factors in the collapse of the Soviet Union. And obviously it happened in in Ukraine. And it's not necessarily directly about Ukraine, but uh, Philippe Sand's book, East-West Street, is is very centred on the city of Viv, which also used to be Lemberg under the Austro-Hungarian Empire and Lvov under Poland. So it's a very kind of cosmopolitan city, which changed political allegiance several times over the 20th century, I think about five or six times. And his book really, really centers the city itself in his narrative, but it's a really kind of excellent exploration of the origins of crimes against humanity and two figures who shaped the concepts of of genocide and crimes against humanity, both of whom had a connection to Lviv. It's a really excellent book. And I think it's also, obviously it's not the part of the part of Ukraine which kind of we're all focused on. It's the western part which is not at war and quite different to the eastern part. But for understanding the background of that part of the world and apart from anything else, how cosmopolitan and, and multinational Western Ukraine was or still is, it's really excellent. We should also add, as she was too modest to do so herself, Alessia Kromichuk's own book a loss, the story of a dead soldier told by his sister, which tells the story of her own brother's loss in, in the fighting, I think in 2017, in the war in the east of Ukraine. Again, I think a powerful and important reminder that Ukraine has been at war for many years now, and it's important to hear Ukrainian perspectives on that fighting. Thanks to all of you who send in your questions. If you've got a question for us, please go to newstatesman.com slash us and send it in to us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Monday for our interview episode where Jeremy will speak with Catherine Ashton, the EU's first high representative for foreign affairs and security, about her new book, And Then What? Inside Stories of 21st Century Diplomacy. If you're a regular World Review listener and you haven't already subscribed, please do. Please also rate us five stars and leave us a good review. It really does help. Our producer today has been Mae Robson. Thank you for listening and until next time. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson 
for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.